0: At dinner, I like to uh, sit and talk to people, I like to ask you many questions. Whenever I travel, it's always interesting to find out about people's lives and what they're doing and stuff like that. i do not not particularly interested in talking about myself extensively. I generally hear about myself when I get introduced when I travel, so if I'm curious about myself, I generally learn something from the introduction. <laughs> and. But what I do find, there's a lot of, you know, people have various things going on in their lives, different things going on in different parts of the country. Something that I do find in common, in addition to the general degradation that Pastor Siepert referenced, is also perhaps a general discouragement about the future of the church. That in many churches, you can find pictures of previous, usually there's something like confirmation classes, sometimes school photos if the if the church has a school, and that what is going on in those photos is that the closer you get to the present, the smaller the photos get, the closer in they get. And it's very similar most often with pictures of seminary graduating classes, if your pastor has one of those in his office, that if he's a relatively young pastor, the photos are relatively large and there are relatively few people in the photo, and that if he graduated in the 80s or the 70s or, Certainly before that, the photos themselves individually in the class picture are smaller because there are so many more people to fit into the same size frame. So that what we have over time is either just a plateau or more often probably a decrease in the number of people practically involved in the life of the congregation and the number of people involved in the life of the church broadly. And that decrease is gets expressed in something that I hope I don't come off as if I'm asking you questions about your life, which is a kind of shark mentality that our congregations get into. Maybe you've been there, you've moved to a new place, or you went to college and you go to a new church, and you appear to be relatively fresh blood. And as fresh blood, you enter into the congregation, maybe for the first time, and People look at you and they smell the fresh blood on you and they circle you or encircle you or entrap you because they're desperate in a way and their desperation is understandable. They are unfamiliar with new people coming into the church. They are well aware and very familiar with the idea that their church could die within some measurable, imaginable number of years and they want you to be part of that not dying. Maybe you've been that congregant, or you've been that pastor, or you are still that congregant or that pastor. But I think the phenomenon is general. It's not absolutely everywhere, but it is general. And it's not really a life that anyone wants to lead. No one wants to be consumed by sharks, nor does anyone really want to be described as a shark, but oftentimes our actions do not agree entirely with our imaginations of ourselves. In addition to those kinds of photos and those kinds of realities, you can also often find photos if you've done any perhaps genealogical research or you have boxes full of old family photos of things like family reunions or even just anniversary photos, let's say it's mom and dad and it was their 30th anniversary in 1955 and usually those photos will also contain more human beings than we currently have. I don't want to start out in talking about these realities in ways that are simply about what we're supposed to do because I don't think that's what we forgot. I don't think we forgot we were supposed to have kids. I think that a lot of other things changed and we realized or we woke up as congregations do when they begin to realize collectively or to discuss collectively that they are nearing death. We woke up and we realized something had drastically changed and it was like we were asleep. And then sometimes you wake up and you're doing things and you didn't even realize you were doing them. You're drooling on yourself or you're in a weird position or one leg is hanging off the bed And so when people wake up, often it's not just that they fell asleep and they missed some time, it's that a lot of things changed and they don't even know how it happened. And I think that that is perhaps the place to start. Because about this reality, sometimes it is suggested that the very simple solution is for us to be, for Christians in the United States generally, who have the same general difficulties, to be, more evangelistic, that is, better able to communicate the gospel to unbelievers and then to bring them into the faith. I have absolutely no problem with that. I even say sort of the same thing myself a lot. I don't, however, say that that is really the solution. Here's why. Most people of any religion come by that religion via their raising. That's true for practically any religion, practically anywhere in the world. So if there are going to be people in any kind of a church, most of them will have come into that church or into, let's say, church generally. Perhaps they switch from being a Methodist to being a Presbyterian or something. But they will have come into church by virtue of having been raised more or less in church. And I think it's a mark of the health of many churches, of many synods, the degree of loyalty that their people have. Lutherans are still markedly loyal to their church in a way that, regardless of reduced numbers, many denominations would envy. That is, when a Lutheran moves to a new place, generally he's asking, where is the Lutheran church? That's not true for many churches. For some churches, it's just not true at all. And that's a good thing. If you are raising your children to be Lutherans, then not only are you raising them in specific ways, you're also raising them to be loyal in that very basic way. And it's that loyalty to heritage, loyalty to raising, that is going to really ensure that there is a future. There will be people who, like myself, were not raised in this who become Lutherans or become Christians, but the numbers of those are always vanishingly small. The numbers of other former Episcopalians I've met in my travels I could count on one hand and maybe half of one hand. There are not many of us. So most people are going to be raised to be what they are. Most people are not currently in the United States being raised to be Christians. What's going on? What could change? If we woke up this way and we realized that several embarrassing things were wrong, what did change that got us that way? We're gonna suggest two different things. We could have brought in more numbers and there are subsets of these two different things that I think you could divide and subdivide if you were so inclined. One thing that changed was a very basic understanding that life is not a gift a basic understanding that people in the United States have that life is not a gift. This, as well as the other thing I'm going to suggest to you, gets expressed in many, many different ways, such that the fact that our churches are emptier than they once were, or there are fewer children than there once were in them, is an expression of something that is general. It's not unique to us, it's not theologically unique It's a theological problem, but it's not only ours. The idea that life is not a gift. This is, of course, very simply, easily, legally, and politically recognizable in the debate about whether it is okay to murder innocent children in the womb. Of course, it's recognizable there. Usually, however, the problems that we have are some problem that our neighbor has in a different form. If it's hard for trees to grow in our neighbor's yard, probably they're not doing so hot in our yard either, even if maybe we have one and he doesn't. So the idea that life is not a gift makes it thinkable that if there is someone who is dubiously alive or dubiously an independently functioning human being in the womb, then we could of course kill him because life is something that I make for myself. Life is something that I make for myself. Along the same spectrum, however, is the idea that children are optional generally, or that children are at my disposal as to their number, assortment, intellectual capacities, and lots of other things you could pick. So most people pick the number of their kids, people in other countries where People with Down syndrome are currently being exterminated. For example, many European countries pick them according to their mental capacities. The issue is always the same, and it's an issue of the primacy of choice or self-making over gift-receiving. Self-making over the receiving of gifts. The reason that you had more kids in the past was not simply because people were somehow God forbid, but I think a lot of us think this on some level, that they were somehow less capable or thoughtful people than we are now, and now we know better, so that's why we have whatever kids we have, or we have a boy and a girl, and as we were told, and it's funny now because sometimes we'll take a subset of the kids to something like the grocery store, so we have one boy and two girls or something like that, and someone says, now you have your family. It's, It's just a subset of... larger number of people we're not even going to tell them about but the issue is that what's happening is that choice gets exalted over every other thing in life and it gets applied to human beings in all kinds of ways and so of course it's not just the number of kids that's at issue it's what kind of kids they're going to be and who they are and if it's okay for them never to be as intellectually capable as their parents are, or whatever the case may be. But choice becomes definitive of life. Choice is the opposite of receiving gifts. Why was it rude? Why did your mom tell you not to tell your grandma that you already had that toy or those socks that your grandma was giving you at Christmas time or at your birthday? Why was it ever rude to say something to grandma about the fact that you already had that toy? The reason it was a problem is because grandma was trying to give you a gift. She's trying to give you something that you just receive and then you enjoy it. Hey, now I have two GI Joes or now I have two complete packages of tube socks from Walmart or whatever the gift was that grandma was giving you. The point is it was a gift, it wasn't your choice, it's not about what you want, it's not about what you would buy or did buy yourself, it's about the fact that it was a gift. If life is self-made, then it is really by definition no longer a gift. That can be applied in a variety of ways. We can be more or less guilty of obsession with our choices and our self-making and our imagination of what our life would be with Ten kids, if that's what we want, or no kids, if that's what we want. But the problem is always the obsession with self and with choice. That's one thing. And like Pastor Siepert was saying, Romans 1 is not just about the specific sin that other people are committing, in that case a sexual sin in Romans 1. Paul brings it up as a pointed example of a general problem. So if I see somebody trying to fashion her own life by getting rid of her child, I'm not just asking myself what's wrong with that, what's wrong with her decision. I'm asking myself what's wrong with us, that that's even thinkable legally or personally in our country. And it seems to make more sense that we would have this problem at all because of a general obsession with self-making and choice than that she alone of all human beings alive today is just doing something crazy no one else would ever do or ever do anything like. The obsession with choice is related to the other issue that I think plays into this most. It comes out of a sense that life is a series of choices I've made. And it has to do, and this is a little bit more like waking up with your leg hanging off the bed than anything else, but an idea that life has just changed and we just have to accept that. Life has just changed from the way it was for our great-grandparents and we just have to accept that. And by that, I don't mean the technologies that we use. We no longer wait for telegrams to arrive. We download telegram, right? Or we no longer listen to the radio and turn on the set at a specific time. To listen to Walter Meyer on the Lutheran Hour, right? We're listening to podcasts or playing music constantly, whatever it is that we're filling our ears with all the time. It's not just that technology has changed. Obviously, the technological circumstances of daily life are different than they were, even for ourselves 10 or 20 years ago, let alone for our great grandparents. It's an acceptance that somehow technological change equals a change in human nature. That humans get updated, new packages installed, that humans are shaped somewhat like a technology. Again, this exists along a spectrum. And we can pick out extreme examples and say, look at this crazy guy in Silicon Valley who's who thinks that he's gonna upload his consciousness or thinks that he's gonna somehow attain immortality through technological innovation, or we can see how our lives do get changed by technology in ways that end up splitting up the family. The one to go along with an earlier question about things maybe pastors get a lot or you notice in your own life, but about which we have relatively little public discussion is the way in which phone usage generally creates absence in a family even where there is physical presence. So the person is in the room with the other person, but only one person needs to be on his phone in order for the absence to be created whereby it's like he is not there. That wouldn't really be happening if human nature were changing like technology changes where you know, they could put apps on their phone to tell them to get off their phone, or the phone could lock them out of certain programs at a certain time or something. But the reason that's not going on, even if the person is sitting there scrolling and feeling guilty about the fact that he's scrolling, but he continues to scroll, the reason that's not happening is because the human nature is still addicted to whatever is going on on the phone, even though the technology itself does exist for him to stop. The problem there is not that not enough people have done uptake on some new app that's gonna help them focus more. It's that in and of themselves, the way to avoid life is not to focus. The way to avoid the responsibilities that the gifts of family entail is to stay away from them. The way to avoid the weight of presence is to pursue absence. It's that combination of a delusion that life is not a gift along with an illusion that somehow human nature will change fundamentally or has changed fundamentally so that the rules are different than they were for our great-grandparents who might have even policed kinds of things like not putting our elbows on the table and we just think that's absurd now but they had a certain way that they wanted people to be present, and it's not just that we're allowing the elbows on the table, it's that we don't even require you to really look at each other when you are in the same room. So if self-making is a problem, out of self-making comes the idea that somehow human nature has changed sufficient, that all bets, all rules inherited from the past are off. In this case, of course, heritage, the word itself, sounds like a matter of just antiquarian interest. If I were to talk about my heritage like my family or my heritage like my church, to talk about that just seems silly because, of course, life is what you make of it and life is always changing because I am always getting updates to my various apps. You see here how changes in what we call in the Lutheran church the orders of creation, or sometimes we would call them the, the estates, especially the estate of the family, how these things always end up affecting whether the gospel gets heard or how the gospel is heard. That is, as we said, in a way that we thought about kind of in life experience terms earlier, the way that people live their lives and whether they hear about Christ in their own families does generally affect whether they believe in Christ later on. At all, The three estates are a way that Lutherans have historically talked about the different realms of life God puts us in, commonly grouped into church, state, and home or family. Our first contention for this hour is that if the family is the one that's most messed up, the other two can't help being horribly awry. I'm not really surprised at the declining numbers of kids in the confirmation pictures because the family is the thing that was attacked most severely in that time as those numbers went down. There have been upheavals in the church, that's for sure. But most congregations are not living day to day, week to week over specifically churchly controversies. They're not aware of what debates are going on inside the halls of power in their synod. They are not discussing endlessly differences between synods. They are not discussing the nature of history and whether the Wauwatosa theologians were properly appropriated in the Wisconsin Synod or not, generally, as far as I know. This group may be different, and so my generalizations may be totally wrong but they are reflecting week to week the dynamics going on in those families. The families that people come from, even if they don't or can't bring their families with them to church, and the dynamics inside those families that are in the church together, they are reflecting those. Even if it's a sort of anonymous suburban congregation where people barely know each other, down to a rural congregation where people often will share life together day-to-day see each other regularly regardless of whether you know each other well or you don't you are engaged in each other's families all of the time just like when you're talking to somebody you're hearing her mother's way of saying things because she's reflecting that or his father's way of moving his hands when he talks which is exactly what I'm doing right now So you're always dealing with other people's families whenever you deal with them, even if you don't know those families. It's why these questions about self-making or fundamental changes in human nature, both of which I think are wrong, we do not make ourselves, and human nature does not change except in Christ for the better. It's why those assertions matter, those falsehoods matter so much It's not just a numbers question that you would have to think about like you're desperate and you haven't gotten a new member in roughly 19 to 20 months and the last new member you got left. That's a certain kind of worry. There's also the reality that you really don't want to live life with people whose family lives are fundamentally disordered it makes life miserable. They are miserable, and then they can make and do make other people miserable as their family life has made them miserable. So these kinds of disorder, destruction, sadness, These don't just stay inside the estate of the family as if they're self-contained there any more than a problem in the church as we talked about in the first hour this morning somehow remains confined to the church and the state's dictates don't somehow come into the church and have to be dealt with. The estates, the realms of life in which God has placed us all talk to and interact with both for better and for worse, one another. They're not, and they never have been, self-contained. People were not nearly so worried about the disappearance of the Lutheran church or the disappearance of churches generally when people's family lives were differently ordered. So what did change? What is it that we realize when we wake up? How did my leg start hanging off the bed this way? In addition to the two false assertions we already recognized, let's say this, we believed that somehow there were parts of life in which God had no jurisdiction. If you look at older Lutheran publications, you will find them talking about what would seem to you to be an extremely wide array of topics. A good example of this, the youth organization for the entire Synodical Conference, as far as I know, was the Walther League, It was started in the Missouri Synod, but there were similar things, and they would meet together through the different synods. If you read the publication of the Walther League, the Walther League Messenger, you will not only be astounded at the number of young people in places like Milwaukee and New York City who were participating in this, but you will also find them talking, especially on the front page of each issue, about an extremely wide range of things. Now, why was that? Why, for instance, would you want to discuss whether America should get into the Second World War or what kind of a life should you have and what age should you get married at and lots of other things I have almost never heard a Lutheran pastor talk about, certainly not from the pulpit. Why this wide range of things written by a Lutheran pastor, and this is the first Lutheran Hour speaker, Walter Meyer, why do that? I think they had a little better sense... That life was interconnected, that church did not exist in a sealed vacuum from the rest of life, and that decisions made either on the job or in the family or whatever else or the age at which you tried to get married or lots of these other things did actually impact your faith. There were specifically doctrinal articles. There were also lots of things to discuss about all sorts of things going on in life the labor market, and all kinds of things. And the reason was that they understood that those things all impact the church, and the church can impact also those things. That breadth was due to a sense of life, all of it, as under God's jurisdiction. So that the decisions I'm making in my family, the decisions I'm making when I go to work, the things that I'm doing with my life as the years go by and as my kids grow up, all of those things make are matters of accountability to God and therefore matters for discussion by God's people. And not all of them were hard and fast, like you must do this and you can't do that and you must have this position and you can't have that position. But if Christians don't discuss them, then we're never going to find out if the Lord's people can learn anything from his word about those issues. I think what happened is that life kind of changed very obviously, certainly in the United States in the past hundred years. Life changed and we told ourselves, we discussed very little with ourselves, anything about those changes. So they generally impacted us and we find the past therefore to be even the past of our own church bodies to be very, very strange. I wanna give you this fact and then maybe you can reflect on the strangeness of it. Walter Meyer, the guy that writes these articles I mentioned to you, wrote a book about marriage in the early 1930s called For Better, Not For Worse. It's a big book and it's kind of hard to get hold of today. Maybe it's not the first Wells hymnal, hard to get hold of, but it's somewhere close, but it's in English, so if you get hold of it, you can probably read it. And for better, not for worse, when he talks about family size, his major concern is that the world is obsessed with controlling family size. He identifies that as a difficulty not only in Protestant churches, but also in the Catholic church, because he says Catholics are trying to come up with an excuse to control family size, which is precisely what they did. That's what natural family planning is. You plan so that you don't have a kid this year. His issue there was that what's happening in that dynamic is not just that certain technologies are being used, that's kind of the Catholic critique of birth control historically, but it's that you are living in a way that children are made to seem something that in the scriptures they are not. And the best way to understand this from the scriptures is to contrast children with something that we do have a lot more of in every American church, especially the Lutheran church, than we used to. If you look at an old confirmation photo from 1912, the dresses that the girls are wearing and the suits that the boys are wearing are probably the only dresses, the only really nice ones, and the only really nice suits that those kids own. They don't have two of them. We have a lot more money than we used to. Maybe in the future we're going to have less money. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe more of us will be renting than we used to, (laughs) but that happened in the past too. Most Americans used to not own their homes. We have a lot more money, we have many fewer kids. Take a look at what the scripture says, and this is kind of a word study thing for you. I'm not going to go into specific passages right now, except to mention the Psalms 127 and 128, and then contrast them with the discussion of money throughout the Gospels. In Psalm 127 and 128, you're going to see children described as both a blessing and a reward, like a really, really great thing. You know, and there really isn't qualification of that or hedging on that. It doesn't say, well, and if your kid has these kind of physical or mental difficulties, then, hmm, or whatever, it's just, they're great. The fruit of the womb is a reward there in 127 and 128. And the man whose children are growing like, it says, wild olive shoots, and generally we don't know much about olives in northern places, but they do grow in sort of a wild way in the same way grapes do if you don't trim them back. They just kind of spring up. That's the description of children, and the wife is a fruitful vine, and this is a wonderful thing, okay? okay. So that's kind of kids. There are other places to go. Behold, I and the, Lord, and the children the Lord has given me. Lots of places to go. That's kids, Money is set on the other side, not as in its own way an absolute evil, such that touching it is bad. It's not money that is the root of all evil. It is the love of money. But money does, in a way that we don't generally discuss in American churches, burn a hole in your pocket. That is, if it's not received as a gift and used as a gift, it tends to become an enormous burden. Most people who die suddenly in the scriptures are quite wealthy or at least arrogant, usually both. Certainly in Luke's gospel, money becomes a burden such that the rich fool, as well as the rich man, contrasted with Lazarus, die with a lot on their hands. And all the stuff that they had, all those gifts of wealth that they did receive, proved to be a snare and a burden to them, finally. It's why the entrance of the rich man into the kingdom of God is described as very difficult. That's about the absolute inverse of how children and money are conceived of by your average person that you would stop and talk to kind of anywhere on a daily basis. Kids are a big problem and a wonderment. And there's a lot, I, can, I mean, I could stand here and tell you funny stories about my kids all day, but I think they look a lot like each other, but people will still say things like, do you run a daycare? Yeah, they just all look like each other, it's weird. Um, whatever, <laughs> but um, it's, you know, I mean, whatever. People, and people say dumb things and they say mean things and they say whatever, people say lots of things about anything in life. But people are like, wow, that's a lot of kids. If I went around and I said, here's my net wealth, right? Here's my, you know, this, this is what I'm worth and that number were impressive, which it's not. But if it were impressive, and I said, or you know, some billionaire, like on the Forbes bil- you know, billionaire list, announced this is his net worth, people are not like, wow, I don't know what I would do with $3.4 billion. Because when they're thinking about that net worth, what they're really thinking about is what they themselves would do. And if they have a problem with that guy, it's really that they're envious of him. They want that. They want all of that, and if they could get more, they want it. I don't actually think this is a new issue. Not at all. So it may be that our confirmation class photos have changed, but I don't really think this is new at all. I think the technological means of finding children to be burdensome and finding money to be wonderful, those have changed. It's easier to get richer, perhaps, than it's been at many other times in human history. And it's easier not to have children or not to have whatever your reckoning of too many is than it ever has been in human history. But it's not really a new phenomenon because I don't believe that human nature has changed. If it hasn't changed, however, I also don't believe, I also don't believe that life is not a gift. And that's where we wanna begin with our sort of positive assertions, not just our diagnoses, but our positive assertions followed by some practical suggestions like we did in the first talk. I think what we have to recognize first of all is that if children are a reward or a gift, then life itself generally is also the same. Children are, for that very reason, used by Jesus as examples of how to be alive, especially in relationship to God. He doesn't bring into the midst of the disciples who are feuding over things about which adults are prone to be worried, including power, position, reporting, responsibilities, authority, and money, things about which the disciples regularly argue as a group. He puts a child in their midst because a child is someone who is living in dependence, in space dependence. A child has to. He doesn't really have a choice. Therefore, children are generally a lot better at trusting at least people that they know. I think mine are maybe a little bit more suspicious than other people's children, which causes us some embarrassment when we meet new people and my children are cold, hostile, whatever the case may be, okay? Maybe they're expressing something deep inside of me. That's usually the case when they do something wrong. Okay, but they're better at trusting than adults are. It's why I really have never understood the question, why do you baptize babies in the Lutheran church? I mean, if anybody is suspicious, It's the adults. Luther correctly identifies exemplary faith as infant faith. Trusting, living by trust, existing, being carried around. They are the model, we are the learners. No one enters the kingdom of heaven except like a little child. There are no other options. You have to stoop low and you have to trust, just like kids do. Kids not only make you aware, but also in themselves express the nature of life, its fragility, its beauty, the short time that it lasts, and the nature of trusting. They understand these things, not rationally, but they understand them and they live them in ways that adults are actually taught by the Lord to learn from. They express, both in their existence and in their way of existing, the fact that life is a gift, from first to last. This is why when Paul talks about possessions, he asks a question that really only seems obvious to a child. It's supposed to be a rhetorical question to the Corinthians, but it doesn't seem obvious to adults. That's why he has to say it explicitly. He says to them, what do you have that you have not received? For a kid, he could pick up his shirt and point to his shoes and point to the tube socks he got from grandma and the twin bed that he received as a hand-me-down from his cousin and everything else that he has and say, everything I have, the shirt I'm wearing, the haircut I just got from my dad in the bathroom, all the things that I have, I have received. I don't pay for anything. I just go places and my parents give me stuff and then on Christmas they give me more stuff and everything I have I have received. For adults the question does not seem to be rhetorical. For adults the question what do you have that you have not received is something that we actually have to spend time reflecting on and beginning to think about the talents that we have as gifts, as in the parable of the talents, or thinking about the home that we live in, the mortgage we pay for, and all the rest of it, somehow by hook or by crook as some kind of gift that the Father has gotten into our lives. But to us, it doesn't seem to be a question with an obvious answer. What do you have that you have not received? Well, my success at my job, and this, and that, and the other thing. And it takes us time to learn that we also are children and that we live in a way that is completely received. The dying are those who understand these things, and although we talk a lot about baptism in the Lutheran Church, I wish we talked about it more in connection with death and concretely the way that people in the faith do die, which is they begin to focus on things that actually matter. The dying generally have a grasp a right side up understanding of that inversion that we described earlier, that inversion of the value of money somehow being greater than the value of children. I have never attended a person who was dying, male or female, rich or poor, who ever called for his money. Please bring me my money before I die. My money is on the plane from Seattle, and I hope that it gets here before I pass. My very impressive W-2s from my 50s and my highest earning years at the company, they're on the plane from DC, and I hope that they're able to be with me for a couple of days, pastor. Please bring my W-2s with me when I go, and they transfer me to hospice. Never happened, not even once. I have seen only children struggle with the death of their mother after their father has passed five years earlier. I have seen people say things about they wish they had more children to come around. And I have certainly seen everybody who has had children say that they want their children to be with them. It's kind of a truism about death that it's a wonderful thing to be surrounded by friends and by family. So it's generally the dying who show us much more clearly, they're the best adults that I've ever seen get close to the way that children live, where my children don't worry nearly as much about stuff as by the fact that their older sister is at a sleepover and they haven't been there for maybe 10 hours and when are they coming home? So they just have a clearer grasp of what is important generally than adults are able to have at least before their dying day. If life is a gift, then it's also true that human nature does not change apart from Christ. So we're always going to have this problem. I don't want to, and I hope I did not in the way that I framed it, suggest that having more children is there in order to fix denominational difficulties or congregational sizes or to make your Thanksgiving dinner that much more joyful. Children are not as we are so prone to use all of God's gifts, children are not a means to an end. The nature of God's gifts, whether children or anything else, is that they should be enjoyed for their own sake. Family is enjoyed for its own sake. It doesn't have to be a means to an end. What I am suggesting, however, is that the flourishing of families is actually going to have lots of other effects in life that you, when you meet someone who was raised well or a family that is happy being what it is, then you are encountering something that is blessing all the other realms of life that that family steps into. Like we said earlier, life begins, but it does not end at the front door in the home. And that'll connect us to some of the practical suggestions we have in about the, I'm gonna take another 15 minutes for myself and then we'll stop for any kind of questions that you have. The practical suggestions. So one of the things that we saw with the understanding of children and money is an inversion. So we're gonna suggest that what we're doing here is trying to turn certain things right side up, or at least closer to right side up than they currently are because right now the bowl is turned upside down and it's empty. And that's an image of life that God uses when he is punishing his people. It's used first in Deuteronomy and then repeated in the prophets that in his punishment of them, he will shake them off and shake off everything they have in the way that you do when you turn the bowl upside down, wipe it, and then like flip the dishwater out of the rag, and the bowl is completely empty. There's nothing in it anymore. And a lot of us have looked at our congregations and envisioned the bowl empty and upside down, completely clean in the worst possible way, in the way that God, when he talks about famines in the scriptures, speaks about having cleanness of teeth. Your teeth are clean, not because you brush them, but because you have had nothing to eat empty. There's an upside downness to life that I think has been there for a long time. It inheres in sinful human nature. It's simply becoming more and more obviously and openly expressed. So if I can express a difference between 100 years ago and now, it's not that human nature has changed, but it is that, especially technological changes and other kinds of changes, have made human sin much more openly and obviously expressed. That also creates more sin. I don't believe that there were kids in elementary school in 1922 trying to imagine what it would be like if they turned into cats. Now there are kids in school, I'm not, this is not scare tactics, this is like life. There are kids in school now pretending to be cats, dogs, other things, what's going on? Because a lot of people, especially if you weren't paying attention, see this as something totally new. But this is in the nature of sin, not only to turn life upside down so that boys would want to be girls and girls boys, or humans would want to be something else, but okay, some humans want to pretend to be cats, but a lot of humans think they're supposed to turn into angels when they die, which is a denigration of the glory of being human and the fact that It is human nature that is seated on high. Okay? So problems are always here, but especially when sin gets emboldened, then it begins to express itself in a way which is exceedingly sinful. And that's where we are now, for sure. Things openly expressed, things clearly expressed, and in the baby carrier behind me in the security line on the way here. Now this was Denver, not Wisconsin, so. But there was a lady with a baby carrier like my wife has for the little ones, but there was like a little white dog inside of the baby carrier with the legs splayed out like a baby. I don't think the dog was comfortable, (laughs) okay? I don't look at that lady or that dog and think like, oh, what a horrible person. I think that that's on some kind of spectrum with a lot of other things and a lot of life is turned upside down. What can we do to turn it right side up? First is the basic idea that the scriptures are actually sufficient not only for faith, but also for life. So they show us how to be wise in daily life. They show us how to be wise in daily life, especially parts of the scriptures that are relatively neglected in our lectionaries, such as Proverbs. They give us not just advice, but principles that we're supposed to meditate on and then figure out how to apply so that life has a certain shape for which it is set up. That is that in life, it doesn't matter nearly so much how I feel or what I think apart from the scriptures. What matters is what I learn from the scriptures about how to be. Unfortunately, I think a lot of times in the Lutheran church, we can find discussion of that reality to pastors. We do tell pastors they have to be a certain way. We rarely tell mothers or people in business or lots of other things what the scriptures teach them about their lives and what pattern that has. That life really is more about learning to fill the vocations or to say it maybe in a more colloquial way to play the roles that you have been given than it is about what you want or discovering your true self or lots of other ways that modern people inside and outside the church but certainly apart from the Bible think about how to fashion their lives. Pick up your cross and follow me is not an invitation to self-discovery. It's an invitation to death. You die in your role as a mother or as somebody who's actually honest at work or as someone who doesn't lie to the other people that you are on your city council with or whatever role you have, it always entails death. It always has. And if that was enough for your master, it's going to be enough for you. Maybe over and over again. Into that understanding that life has a certain shape that the scriptures describe, however, is also the understanding that it is inside that life, shaped by the scriptures, that you find God's gifts. Often contrary to your own expectations, Contrary to your own expectations, a Christian marriage that has the husband as the head of it is not, in fact, a way of destruction, sadness, and misery. Since it is the way that the Father relates to the creation and the way that the Christ relates to the church, it is a way of joy, of peace, of security. It is a way of blessing, not of curse. It's only in that life that you actually discover That truth. You can hear it said, you find it to be real as you live it. It's a good thing, I think, for example, that pastors forsake and the church supports them in their income. Why? Because as Paul teaches about giving, we actually grow when we give. When we sow abundantly, we do reap abundantly. And that if the pastor is giving up one thing and then giving his heart to this, he will grow in ways that he can't imagine when all he's thinking about is giving up this particular secure source of income and going instead into the church where he'll never get paid as much, never, not again in his life. He won't know until he does it what it is that in giving up other things he is gaining and following this vocation. It is no different with motherhood or honesty or lots of other things that the scriptures give as they shape for people's lives. What I think we have missed out on as the confirmation class pictures have gotten smaller is not just numbers, we have, we do. I wish we had more Lutherans and more Lutheran churches and I wish that the ratio of churches of any kind to the population had stayed about the same as it was 130 years ago, but it's probably about twice as bad as it was then. It's that I think we are missing out on certain life experiences in not following the vocations that God gives us in the same way that we wouldn't have King David if his dad had said, all right, that's enough because he's number seven or eight or something like that. In missing out on life, it's basically like the father puts a bunch of presents under the Christmas tree and we only open one. And then the question is, what's wrong with you, kid? (laughs) What is the matter with you? Don't you want to open your presence? Because if it's an experience of life in which we learn truths that the scriptures display and then we find applied to ourselves, it's also the case that we will get to experience God's provision, his love, in a very rich way in the acceptance of life, especially of children, as gifts. And openness that means that the day becomes something more like a surprise and a joy than anything else. And that is an easy thing to say as we sit here. And I'm not saying it so that you immediately nod your head and assent to all of this right away today, especially if this is the first time that you've heard some of these things. That's not really the point. The point is, what I am saying to you is born out. In life. If I experience life as a gift, especially family and children as a gift, then what I'm doing is setting up in my own life a source of joy that the world does not know of and does not depend on my performance. I don't have to share it with other people, it's my family but also I am who I am enduringly apart from my performance or even after my death. After my death, after his death, I am still the son of my father, always. That has nothing to do with who he is or when he dies or when I die or anything like that. We still belong to each other I still love him because of his existence. In the same way, I am my children's father long after they and I are gone. This gives you, in an earthly way, the closest analogy we really have, which is why I think God uses the words that he does in scripture to describe his relationship to us, the closest thing that it is to experiencing A little picture, almost as it were, of life eternal. Enduring, loving existence. The family and the gospel are so closely interrelated that Paul begins to speak about the beauty of the gospel in Ephesians 5. He's supposed to be giving sort of a wedding sermon and explaining what the man and the woman are supposed to do. But he gets caught up talking about Christ and the church because God has put a little picture of the gospel in the relationship between the man and the woman. Our ordering of our lives according to the scriptures between the man and the woman and between the parents and the children is not just there because we wanna have the right answers. It is there in the scriptures because it shows forth the nature of God himself, and especially of his love which is enduring and does not pass away and is happy to have more of us. If you can imagine it this way, don't just think of uh, confirmation class photos or seminary class photos of some size. Think about how God looks at the congregation as it sits there, whether there are 30 people or whether there are 300 people. He obviously knows things that not even their own families know about themselves. But I don't think that he thinks of them, certainly in his word he does not speak of them as if they are to him some kind of burden, some kind of difficulty. I wish I had fewer and better Lutherans. I don't think he thinks of us that way. I wish I had fewer and better Christians. Now, the pastor, in his worst moments, might think that. I wish I had fewer and better Lutherans in this congregation, and I wish that fewer of them messed up their own lives, and I wish that fewer of them complained about basic Lutheran thing. I mean, those are his worst moments, though. In our worst moments, maybe we think the same way about our kids. I wish I had better kids, or fewer, better kids, or whatever... But the Father is not so, so we should not be so. He is happy to have us. So when Christ, when Christ is cited from the Old Testament, speaking in the letter to the Hebrews, it speaks of his delight not only in obtaining our salvation, everything necessary for the gift of eternal life to be given to us. It speaks of him as the firstborn among many brothers, and of him as leading many sons to glory, many being used all over the scriptures, not as a description of just a few, but of a great multitude. This is my blood of the covenant shed for the many, for the whole lot of them, the whole bunch. And he is happy to have us. So that when he talks about the gift of life, and especially of abundant eternal life that he gives to us, he doesn't describe the bowl that is so clean and empty, nobody ever uses it, nobody ever even eats in this kitchen, it's just for display, there are no kids to come into this kitchen to eat and make it messy, and that's kind of nice, and the kitchen is really expensive, and the countertops are all marble, and all the bowls are empty and totally clean. When he describes life eternal, he speaks about a bushel basket on a farm. Maybe you get one of these if you do some apple picking or you're maybe getting potatoes out of the field. Whatever it is that you're doing, the basket is dirty. It is messy. And more things are going to need to put into, be put into it. But he describes the gospel in this way, that he will give to you good measure, and he's going to have to push down to fit in all that he wants to give press down, then, like a nice guy, he's gonna shake it together so that some of it falls closer to the bottom so there's a little more space to be put on top. Press down, shaken together, and then, as also David says in the 23rd Psalm, the gifts that he gives to you are going to be running over. Press down, shaken together, running over, and there's always more. Thank you.
1: We have about uh, 15 minutes to uh, take some questions and comments. So at this time, if you have a question or comment, uh, back there at the stand, you can use that uh, microphone um, and we'll get started with that.
0: We've, we've lulled them into just quiet somnolence, so we're okay. The chaplain is getting ready. Um, anybody? Okay, I mean, I, there are several things about approach here that are helpful to say about how to discuss family. I think the first of them is that um, modern people seem to have an issue immediately with the idea that there is a best way to do things. Okay, so there's kind of a baked in relativism to modern life that makes people feel irksome about the fact that you're saying there is a best way to do things. Um, And I think that there's there's a lot that goes into that, but the basic understanding is that if I can never look bad to myself, I really can't ever repent. (laughs) And if we don't, Allow the scriptures to speak, we will never look bad to ourselves. It'll just be like, well, I chose this form of life that is totally chaotic and that my children resent, and I chose this other form of life, but these are the same. And everyone knows on some level that's a lie. That's why, when people discuss these things and they are relativistic, they'll say, you know, blank is just as good as the traditional family. You don't have to say that if you actually believe it. So if I'm an ugly guy and I say I'm just as handsome as Bill is, there's no reason, there's no reason, there's no reason for me to say that if I actually believe it. That would be like saying, well, I'm just as tall as a, as an NBA player. Well, I'm not. It's silly. So there's kind of a there's a baked in relativism that you just always have to, I, I kind of presume it. Especially on personal matters, but that doesn't, they can't really prevent you from speaking. But because that relativism is baked in, or, or even skepticism about there is a best way to do these things, I try to talk about them in a way, and I hope you heard this, that is related to the nature of God and of His gospel. That this is not a matter of, you know, me or anyone else being like, you, you have to do it like this because that's the right way to, and you end up kind of sounding like a hall monitor. Because I don't think that's the nature of the life that God gives people, where you experience his gifts as if they are, like I'm so glad the hall monitor told me to stop running in the hallway. You're not, like you wanna run, you know? Um, You just happen to be walking because he's looking at you and he's gonna report you to the principal. So I try not to talk about these things as far as approach goes in a way that either reinforces relativism or ignores it, because I think that people, underneath relativism is always some kind of lie that they're telling themselves. This life that I've created that is totally chaotic and self-destructive is just as good as your marriage. And they know it's not true, and that's the reason they're expressing the relativism that they are. So underneath that lie is some realization of truth that they have, and I want to appeal to that by saying, like, you know what you're doing is horrible and it's killing you or your kids or whatever, literally or figuratively. So here's a better way of life, which is how God himself presents these things in Proverbs where the dad is telling the son, you're going to go out into the world, here's a better way of life that your mother and I have taught you than what the world's going to present to you. Yep. Other questions? Other comments? Yeah, David, go ahead.
1: Another thought. Um, I read an article by David Brooks on, um, I don't remember the title exactly, but it was pretty much on the failure of the nuclear family and how it was not a good thing. Yeah. And there was some, I think, good takeaways from there, although you had to weed out the uh, modern ideas of children and so on and so forth. But uh, one of the ideas out of there was that historically, families were raised around their families. Mm-hmm. So the children were raised around their grandparents, their aunts and their uncles, so on and so forth. Yeah. Growing up, I was, that was my lifestyle growing up. Mm-hmm. It was around my grandparents and aunts and uncles and whatever. Although we always thought the idea that it takes a village to raise children was a bad idea. <laughs> Although I, now I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'm not sure that that's actually a bad idea, especially when it's a family village. Yeah. But if you look at the churches today, you talk about confirmation class sizes, yeah. they've been reduced. Um, obviously, you see family sizes reduced. But then um, I think part of that goes with you don't have families that are worshiping together. So my children can worship with their great grandma in church mm-hmm. because we all grew up there and they can go to church with her. Right. But for so many people, that's not the case. That's not the because case. Because I'm living thousand miles away from where great grandma
0: is. And I think that at that point you have to receive the church actually as brothers and sisters and live together in a way that families do. So um, some of my kids, especially the older ones, will sit with other families or they'll sit with um, uh, a lady whose family doesn't go to church with her or just various things and that fills out my children's experience of life in a way that if they were just with us or just with people who are just like we are, would not at all be filled out. Because I think the primary value of grandparents is passing things on, but also just giving a different perspective on life than their parents give. Um, and uh, that, that can be at least supplied in, in some way by the different folks in the congregation that the congregation is there not only to worship together, but also to, to live together. Yeah, go ahead. That's right. So she, she connected this idea of childlike faith to accepting that God has a best way for my life. And I think that that's, that's totally on point because I think the issue here is also that I will come off, I think, as harsh, especially when things like this are brought up, if and when I myself, you know, so let's say I'm I'm following a good thing from the scriptures in one part of life, but I'm not allowing myself to be continually corrected by scripture, so I have a certain arrogance or something, and that will be easily seen, so I'm asking them to change, but I myself demonstrate no such childlike disposition because I think that is at the heart of it. Go ahead, Kelly. It's just yeah, as far as I know, I, I read this it was in the New York Times, it was like toma Wisconsin that's that's the problem. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I mean, I think that addressing these things is sort of like the, it's the open discussion of the word applied to family, and it would entail giving up a sense of I mean, my family is my family, but regarding the world, and this is why marriage has always been also a concern of the state, it's a public reality. And when that public reality changes, we kind of act like it's just your private business. Like, I just decided to start wearing, like, yellow suits. Like, that's weird, but that's you. Like, we're not going to have a—nobody in the elders meeting is going to discuss the fact that pastor's now wearing yellow suits— yeah, I, I think if you don't have if you don't have discussions like in Bible class or meetings or whatever of these things, then it's always going to seem like a function of somebody's personality. And and one thing that I like to do is tell people like before I got married, I never really even I never thought like I I mean I I wasn't a girl so I never thought about my wedding, but I wasn't even like oh I need to get married someday. I just met a girl and then I was married and then and then I had kids and now I keep having kids you know so that's so to me it's been kind of a surprise so it's not a function of my personality and I think that a lot of times people think that somehow life is just a function of your psychology and your personality and the scriptures teach that life is a function of the father's gifts and then your trust yeah go ahead yeah, I, I, think, I think the issue, it relates, to the, the reason that, the way that the t- two talks are related is that the first talk is the general, and then this is a specific application. You could do another thing about church. You could do another thing about work, whatever. Specific application of how do we begin to discuss these things? Because we, ha- because we have to be normed by the scriptures. We can't be normed, our lives can't be normed by, well, The Wisconsin Senate or the Missouri Senate or something, well, they said it was fine. Well, sure, whatever. I I don't know. I mean, what if God says something else? That's
1: my question, you know, so. (laughs) What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At
0: 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the beautiful Inland Northwest.